Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers Radio. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I just want to let you guys know how much we appreciate each and every last one of you. And, um, you know, we're going to be talking about respectability politics today. Uh, and we'll get to that shortly. I think we've all, or pretty much many of us, have been on pins and needles waiting for that Ferguson verdict, the grand jury verdict to come down. We thought it was going to be last week. We thought it was going to be this prior week. Now they're saying next week. And, you know, what's interesting are some of the stories that are coming out of Ferguson. Um, one story in particular where it was alleged that a Black woman went to the pawn shop to purchase um, 
to pick up a weapon. I guess she had put some money down on it and they had to do the background check, what happened. And they told her that they were packing everything up because Darren Wilson was allegedly not going to be indicted. So they were packing everything up because they had been forewarned that the protesters and or looters would attack the pawn shops, the gun shops, you know, um, businesses of that nature. Um, I'm not sure about the veracity of that report. Haven't done a lot more investigating, haven't really had the time, but I will be doing that this week because I found that quite interesting. Um, and the governor of Missouri uh, activated the National Guard. And to me personally, it just seems as though they're setting themselves up or attempting to set the narrative up in such a way that invokes or incites a negative outcome. So we shall see. But the young people down there that I've been watching and interacting with, they're smarter than that, much, much smarter than that. And again, as I said last week, some of the violence that took place originally was incited by some young white male anarchists from these college campuses um, that came over to Ferguson, and they were the ones throwing Molotov cocktails or bottles filled with urine. So again, and some of the other people that came over that weren't white, um, they came from other places and some of them, you know, created chaos as well. So we just have to keep an eye on it because the local people, the people from Ferguson, they were policing a lot of the activity out there and attempting to stop people from looting and fighting and the violence. So I just want to make sure that we keep this in perspective and, you know, put it all in its proper context to understand what's happening down there. So I just briefly wanted to talk about that and, you know, some of announcements again. Next October, we will have Moving Social Justice 2, and this will be taking place in Houston, Texas. So this will be hosted by Houston Black Nonbelievers over at Rice University with the assistance of Dr. Anthony Penn. Wonderful man, Donald Wright, is um, um, basically cheering for this particular um, conference. So Dr. Hutchison was the chair for LA. Donald Wright is the chair for Houston. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to Donald Wright or you can email us at peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Again, that's peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. You can also write us at blackskeptics at gmail.com. Again, that email address is blackskeptics at gmail.com. And for either one of those um, email addresses, those are also the PayPal account information. So if you wanted to make a donation, you can do so at either one of those email addresses. If you want to use it towards the Women's Leadership Program, you can indicate that. If you want to use it towards the First in a Family Humanist Scholarships, you can indicate that. 
If you want to use it towards uh, moving social justice conference, you can indicate that as well in the little memo comment section. We are a 501c3 organization, so your donations are tax deductible. Want to make sure you all understand that and to let you know how much we appreciate your support in the past, present, and in the future because we had such a good time this past October. You know, it's hard not to talk about it. We had such a good time that we wanted to do it again and invite more people out to um, to become more informed, to become more educated on these topics. For next year, I know we're going to put together some breakout groups. So that was one of the suggestions made um, on our um, surveys. So we will, you know, have breakout groups and we're just really, really looking forward to it. You know, I, I say don't miss it. Do not miss it. You missed a really good time. And so we're just really excited about everything that, you know, that has happened in the past year, year and a half has been a great year um, as far as, you know, what we were trying to do with people of color beyond faith. We are going to have a webcast in December, and <laughs> I'll try to get that information out. I have to get confirmation from a couple of people to make sure that they are still available for Sunday, December 7th. So I will let you all know that when I get the information. So I want to move on to a couple of stories that are in the news. And one of the stories um, in the news is, well, I'll give, I'll read the article. And this is from on Salon Alternate.com. And it was originally on Salon.com. And it was written by this Riza Aslan. And it says, why Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and the new atheists aren't really atheists. And so basically he states a case in which he basically terms them as anti-theists. And he explained the difference between an atheist and an anti-theist. And this article is really interesting. I think I, no, I don't, I didn't post it on my wall, but I saw it going around quite a bit in the community. And I would advise you guys to read it. It's actually a pretty good article. I don't agree with everything in it, but some of it is um, on point. So if you get a chance, the name of the article again is Why Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and the New Atheists Aren't Really Atheists. And I can give you some of the highlights of this article because I just thought it was quite interesting. Um, again, he's talking about the anti-theist movement in America. And basically he says here, after all, if you truly believe that religion is one of the world's great evils, as bad as smallpox and worse than rape, if you believe religion is a form of child abuse, that it is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children, if you honestly believe this about religion, then what would you not go to 
not go through to rid society of it. And so, you know, I found that quite interesting because those are some of the arguments that we see in the atheist or secular community. And, um, you know, they definitely need to be addressed. I think we have Travis with us. Is that you, Travis? It is me. Hello, Kim. Hey, Travis, how you doing, honey? I'm doing pretty good with my Auntie C self over here in Seattle. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Did you read that article by Riza Aslan um, talking about no, Richard Dawkins? I was just listening to you. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. You know how he put this article together, and what's interesting is some of the characteristics that they attribute to anti-theists are some of the same characteristics that I see some of these anti-theists <laughs> um, showing as believers in some kind, in some ways, because sometimes the irrationality, very irrational, intolerant, and with some of these non-believers, you know, they are allied to racism. I mean, when you when articles come out um, featuring people of color, whether it's black people, Latino people, or native, some of the comments are absolutely horrendous. When American Atheists, Secular Student Alliance, and American Humanist Association, when they put out um, you know, responses to what happened in Ferguson, you should, I told people, go look at the comments. The comments were absolutely horrendous. Some of the comments that come in through some of our websites, particularly um, the Black Skeptics um, Free Thought blog site, they're horrible because she posted a couple of them, but those were only a few of the nuggets. Um, when I had another website, they would come on and make comments like, you niggers think you're so special and, you know, you always want something different. Why can't you just be like the rest of us? And that kind of plays into the respectability politics topic that we'll be talking about later because you have people attempting to force you to assimilate, assimilate to what they want you to be. And yeah. I think so Jim it's... He does. James Baldwin talks about that. Uh, yeah, he does. Where he says, uh, what they're really saying is, how soon can you be white? And he's like, I don't want to be white. I want to grow up, and so should you. You know, so right. like those, but, <laughs> but, um, but getting back to your other thing about the whole like atheist anti-theist thing, and you know, it's very interesting. Um, I saw um, Ingersoll's uh, definition of agnostic, and mm -hmm. and and it to me seems like somebody today would consider that anti-theist or even atheist. I mean, Ingersoll said, for he said the agnostic does not simply say I do not know. He or she goes another step and says with great emphasis that you do not know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> 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 but uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, he, yeah. He continues and says, uh, 
she insists that you are trading on the ignorance of others and on the fear of others. And she is not satisfied with saying that you do not know. She demonstrates that you do not know. And she drives you from the field of fact. She drives you from the realm of reason. She drives you from the light into the darkness of conjecture, into the world of dreams and shadows. And she compels you to say at last that your faith has no foundation in fact. Robert. How about that? How about, How about that? It really said he, but I changed it to she, just to just just, just to get with thee. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. But you know, like you know, what I'm doing here is showing that you know some of the characteristics that you know I see the non-believing community pointing at as being religious. The religious can point the finger back at them and say and say the same thing. Because, like I said, you know, yeah. the racism in the comments, the tribalism, there's definitely a lot of tribalism over in the atheist well, you know what community. I noticed, in, mm -hmm. I noticed in like the atheists or, or uh, some of the humanists or secular uh, folks, they might be libertarians. And that's too close to being a bigot for me. Okay. Exactly. On, on them, okay. And, uh, and on the flip side, man, the black religious people have been getting anti-gay and anti-marijuana legalization okay and it's 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 the black people being anti-marijuana legalization is baffling to me because they only arrest us okay and so right. you you you're just filling right. up the the pockets of well, the people who are profiting making profits off prison Right. But see, this is the thing. Yeah. But the thing about that is about the, you know, when they made marijuana illegal, it was made um, because it, it was a racist policy to begin with, because yep. they always associated marijuana with people of color, particularly black people. And they put that was part of the prohibition, you know, period. And they made it illegal then. And what's interesting is, is that now that they're legalizing it, it's still the same issue because it's white men, again, white supremacy, white men that are profiting from it. And you are correct. We are the ones more, more likely to be arrested, you know, for having marijuana or attempting to purchase marijuana. And from my understanding that they've released some people in some places where marijuana has been um, you know, now legalized. But again, you've taken these years from these people. Uh, again, this is on their records, you know, uh, and if they've been in jail, because I mean, I saw some cases in which somebody would have like a dime bag or something like that on them, and they would get 10 years in prison. It's absolutely ridiculous. And a well, lot of these laws I, um, and policies are built on racism. Go ahead, dear. You're right. Um, I'm working on a documentary right now. My documentary is titled uh, Weed is Safer Than Alcohol. And in the documentary, um, uh, one of the ladies says, uh, she says, uh, cannabis is illegal for only a few reasons, and they are racism, ambition, and greed. And nothing has changed in the last 50 years. It's still exactly racism, ambition, and greed. Yeah, that's what yeah you go. Oh, I was going to say, if you go to Michelle Alexander and when she talks about, you know, what's happening with the, you know, the penal system and in particular with marijuana and the legalization of it, she gives a lot of information. So I would tell you to go over there and to look as well. But I have to address something that you said 
in conjunction with that, you were talking about the Black community being anti-gay. And one of the things that we've been trying to correct on this show is we want to make sure that the Black community, in particular the Black church, is not scapegoated because that's what happened in Absolutely California. Absolutely not. No, no, no. The white church. Yeah. That, I, I was really mad about that. No, they tried to do that with Proposition 8 and try to act like it right. was like voted for it. It wouldn't have passed, but it was Mormons that had paid for the funding to, to be Exactly. And, and, and if, and if um, what was the number? They Basically, they, they did the math. They were saying, well, if all the black people would have voted for it, it would right. have passed. But wait a minute. But if only 10% of the white people would have voted for it, it would have passed. So why are you blaming us? And I, I agree with that right. 100%. I, but mm-hmm. I, for me personally, mm-hmm. when somebody black is anti-gay, I'm like, hey man, the Klan is anti-gay and anti-black. What you hanging out with them? That's why you know. Well, they're recruiting. You know I mean? Well, they are recruiting. So if you Uncle Ruckus types are out there that want to join the Klan, today is your day. They're recruiting folks. So you know what? You know. We talked about it on um, Funny to the Moon, Kim, and we think that uh, the, it's going to work. Because if the Klan can fight, uh, if the Klan can find black people who want to only be around black people, then they then they can be friends with the Klan. You see what I'm saying? Right. If they can find exactly. uh, Mexican persons or Jewish persons who only want to be around Mexican persons or Jewish persons, then um, they're still on the same page of being separate. So you, so a Klan could team up with other separatists and but well, see, maybe, maybe. But the problem is, the problem is is that that was just one offshoot of the Klan, and the other Klan said that uh, we're kicking them out the Klan. <laughs> but see, but see, this is the thing. This is the thing. What you just said is closer to the truth. Because, again, you know, with a lot of these Black nationalist groups, they're nothing but white supremacy in Black face. I tell people, if you really want to see how closely aligned these groups are, follow the money. Because basically, a lot of these black nationalists and black separatist groups were initially financed by white racists. So there is there is a formula to this. And that is why I tell people to follow the money, do the research, because what you said was correct. You said it in jest, but it's actually accurate and it's factual. So, you know, tell people, you know, they can't have, you know, um, a pro-white nationalist agenda and not have a pro-black nationalist agenda. You have to have the antithesis to it. And what's interesting is, is that the pro-black nationalists, you know, I'm talking about the negative ones, the ones that are hiding behind atheism, um, you know, they were financed initially by white nationalists. So follow the money. Follow the money. That's all I have to say, because it's a lot. Money. Uh huh. No, no, you're no, you're you're right. I mean, look, I I just yeah, money is all there. And um, look, like I said, what we found out on doing the show because we do such a long show, we do five hours. (laughs) That's long. yeah, so you know, we started on the block talk doing the three hours, and now we're on over on Uber Conference and SoundCloud.com slash Funny to the Moon doing um you know sometimes we do five hours, but this week right. Kim, we did about I think we did about maybe ten hours total on Bill Cosby. And oh, okay. I know we did ten hours on it. Uh, um, yeah. I'm sorry. 
I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm going to stop right there because your uh, exhale. <laughs> <laughs> your exhale was like, please don't. But the crazy part about it, Kim, really is that it is right uh-huh. now. And, there, and there's so many angles that are that are that are ugly and juicy and and rotten and and curious, uh, uh, creating curiosity, creating. Um, you know what I mean? Like uh, everything from how fast everything happened all of a sudden, and people say that, but it ain't really fast because people knew or had heard about stuff like this for a long, long time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's been going on. Yeah. I mean, it's been going on. The accusations have been out there for a long time. Um, And again, that's one of the parts, you know, it kind of segues into the respectability politics. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that article, but I'll double back to it eventually. But um, basically, let me say this real quick and just knock it out mm -hmm. of the park. You ready? Go ahead. Uh, Bill Cosby, for all these years, has been the king of explaining shit. Okay, right. the king mm-hmm. of explaining, right? right? He can explain to a crowd of white people how his black childhood was similar to theirs and get them to understand and feel it, okay? Right. And so you you, you got to be able to explain this one away, even if that means going all the way to the, you know, all the way to the, okay, 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 I've been cheating on my wife for 50 years, I've been trying to hide it, you know what I mean? I paid right. all these women off, you know, to not kill my wife. And when the money stopped, um, they said that I did stuff to them that I didn't do. You know what I mean? But especially now that they've taken a show off the air and attacking his money and his dates, you would think that once somebody attacks your money, that you would defend yourself. Mm-hmm. If you could. But that's what a that's what a, a, a innocent man would do. I mean, another thing an innocent uh, man would do, I thought, was for me. If 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 one person ever accused me of putting something in their drink, I would never give anybody another drink or pill ever again. Right. Okay. Exactly. You, just, you wouldn't you wouldn't ever see me in a situation where I was alone with a young starlet uh, with the doe eyes trying to find a a, a, a way into Hollywood. Uh, you know what I mean? You just wouldn't. You just right. wouldn't. Um, right. And, you know, you're absolutely correct. You know, someone of that stature that is very um, authoritative, very vocal in his disapproval of people and his, his loudness, you know, yeah, yeah, loudness. yeah, his loudness. Yeah, exactly. And he has nothing to say about this particular situation. Um, and, and what's interesting is a lot of the apologetics that I see from men, and in particular men of color, um, defending Mr. Cosby. And it makes me sad because why would all of these women lie? There are similarities in all of these stories. And what's interesting is you have some people out there laboring under the delusion stating that he was only interested in white women. No, it was, it was some you know women of color you know, uh, that were allegedly right, right, well, um, right. assaulted as well. And so, again... At least three, from what I see, at least exactly. three, maybe more. Look, yeah. look, no matter what, exactly. the truth is, if he's been doing this, if he's been doing this, if he's been doing this since the 60s, um, there's a whole lot of them. And the thing is, are you in the position in your life 
where you want to be a victim number 20. You know what I mean? Um, Right. You know, number five, number four, number 10. Okay, but now we're up to, we're we're at 19 now. Exactly. And I'm sure... And I'm sure there are more, but again, people are afraid. This is one of the reasons why rape is not also, rape is not reported as much. Go ahead. But they, uh, but some people got along, got on with their life. You know what I mean? And, yes. And 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 and, and, and they don't want to be bringing it back up, and because then they, it, it's all kind of stuff that there's all kind of stuff that could be uh, involved in there. And but it, but um, man, that's a rough one. Here, I got one question for you, Kim. Certainly. How many of these women would have to come out and say, I was paid to do this to Bill Cosby for you to then flip and go the other direction? No, no, that's apples and oranges. I don't believe any of them were paid to do that to Bill Cosby. Um, I believe these women, I believe that, you know, they were raped, violated, you know, molested, whatever happened. It was inappropriate. And Bill Cosby, you know, knew better. Okay, it'd right. be different was, if, um, if if he didn't know. Yeah, but he knew better. Like, um, he knew better he than dangling, to put himself. He was uh-huh. dangling a career in front of them while dangling his dick at the same time, and it's dirty. So, I mean, no matter how you look at it, right. That's what he. Was, right. I mean, that's what they're saying he was doing. Now, on the flip, now on the other hand, somebody said, "But isn't this like regular?" Isn't this what what happens in Hollywood? And I brought I brought up like weeks ago on a different topic. I said, if the casting count in Hollywood is not in effect, then please tell me uh, when did it stop? Well, I mean, it's inappropriate all the way around, you know, as far as the casting couches and, you know, what some people, because it's men and women that have been affected by the casting couch, you know, um, as entity itself. So there are a lot of people that have been victimized, you know, but just because this one particular group of people have been victimized, that doesn't say, that doesn't mean that it should continue to happen. It needs to stop. And the people that have been victimized, they need to speak up and speak out. See, things are different now. You know, a lot of these women in this particular situation with Mr. Cosby, they said the reason why they did not come out publicly and some of them didn't even make a police report was because they felt as though they would not be believed. And even in today's environment, we have a lot of people attacking those women and attacking their character, which is creating a situation in which other women, you know, are afraid to come out, afraid to speak up because they don't want to be re-victimized. And, you know, again, you know, even in the religious community, we've seen these stories, whereas the pastor or the priest or the missionary or whomever, how they victimized people and told these people or the people believed that nobody would believe them because of the stature, the power and the privilege of these particular people. And what's interesting is with Bill Cosby and his, you know, abuse of his power and abuse of his authority for him to turn around. And to, you know, chastise and scold the black community as to, you know, the issues in our black community is it's just it's really interesting how all of this is coming out about him. You know, it's, right. it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's ironic. Um, <laughs> You're making me laugh. Yeah, it's, funny, terrible things. And what you made me think about is, 
Yeah, he's sitting there telling people to you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But really, in order to ask somebody to get some help from him, they got to grab a hold of his dick. I mean, this is dirty if it's true. Yes. And 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 I'm saying to you that I spent a ridiculous amount of time in my life watching Bill Cosby. <clears throat> learning from him as any comedian would, right? Um, many right. comedians have, uh, most comedians, I'll even say, have some Bill Cosby in them because even if they learn by copying somebody else, that person was probably copying Bill Cosby, meaning uh, Richard Pryor was doing Bill Cosby's act, like like basically rhythm. I was doing his rhythm, mm -hmm. right, on, in, in jokes. And, right. and basically, if you speed up Richard Pryor, um, it's Robin Williams, okay? Right. If you slow Richard Pryor's, Pryor's rhythm down, it's Bill Cosby, okay? Right, and, right. Um, and so many comedians would admit Eddie Murphy is doing, you know, a combination of, like, Cosby and and Pryor. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. And on and on and on and on. And, and uh, you know, Chris Rock is doing, you know, like, uh, he's doing, like, Richard Pryor, uh, maybe some Woody Allen mixed with some Cosby. You know what I mean? And, and some other people, too. Okay? And we all are. Right? I'm doing Red Fox. I'm doing Red Fox mixed with Bill Cosby a lot of the time. And mixed with George Carlin. Right. Okay? And, right. and Franklin to die, matter of fact. But I'm just explaining about, about rhythms, right? And so with this one, man, I, I uh, Kim, you know, um, I, did, I did a joke about, about this years ago. Years ago, I did it in two thousand and five. I talked about yeah, because I mean, this is nothing new. This we've known about these allegations for a while. And what's interesting is, you know, unfortunately, in in a lot of these comedians, like I said, people they have an image. People don't understand. Some people don't understand how PR works, public relations, and unfortunately, a lot of these celebrities get caught up in the hype. They get caught up in their image. Whereas in real life, they are totally different. And this is why this Bill Cosby situation has, you know, caught quite a few people by surprise because he was, you know, America's father, not just the father of the black community, but America's father. You know, that's the image that they were portraying and his silliness with the jello pudding pops and, you know, him with the children, you know, um, kids say the darndest thing. He did a second version from Art Lick Letters, you know, show. And people are having a hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that America's father is a sexual predator, but was was or allegedly a sexual predator. But what's interesting about that whole thing is that that is what this whole country has been built on, you know. And they're right, whole, you know, right, you're uh, right. Okay, so you're saying you're saying the Bill Cosby. Okay, so I, one of the great uh, lines I saw somewhere this week, somebody wrote, "Bill Cosby is not." Heathcliff Huxtable. Exactly. Okay? And what you're saying is, is that even this country is built on a, a, a story that's a lie. This is not some people who came over here looking for freedom. This is uh, people who came to this country looking for a job. <laughs> and, um, and the job was, maybe the first job was killing off Native Americans and then the next job was enslaving uh, Africans. You know what I mean? And, well, well, in this particular situation, is, oh yeah, but now I'm talking about in this particular situation, it's about the exploitation of women. 
And the only reason why I'm keeping it in that narrow perspective is because I haven't seen any men come forward with Bill Cosby yet. Well, but the exploit- somebody said, uh, you know what? Somebody mm-hmm. said there was a Kirk Cameron fake thing. That Bill Cosby doesn't a Kirk Cameron, and then somebody who defended Bill Cosby said, "Well, why do you? Why, why wouldn't you believe that?" I said, "Well, I ain't never heard about Bill Cosby and no boys, and uh, and I would need just like um, with the women, I would need uh, since I haven't heard Bill Cosby with any any boys, and at the time I said there was like eighteen um, women." And uh, since now there's been another one added too, but I said at the time, for me to believe the man thing, I'd have to see 37 men say, does it happen to them? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, yeah. Oh, yeah, I but, understand right. where, you're, where you're coming from, but, but I'm talking about Bill as Cosby. far as, yeah, right. yeah I'm talking what about as far as sexual exploitation of women. Yes, they got exploitation of women, but Bill Cosby built up so much love points in general that he was able to do that. Um, there was uh, uh, the editor of the Inquirer was on Sally Jesse Raphael like years ago, and he was mm-hmm. asked, "Who can you not mess with?" And he said that when they put the Bill Cosby illegitimate daughter on the cover of the Inquirer, it was the lowest selling Inquirer ever. Yeah. Like they had, they had to come get, back and take them off the shelves, okay? And so you're, yeah. So when somebody tells the victim that nobody's going to believe you because I'm too famous and and powerful, whether I'm a preacher, a celebrity, an athlete, um, the boss at at a job, uh, a, 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 a parent, a uncle, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a it's a beast. It's a beast because uh, I was talking to a woman at the at the at the uh, at one of the stores I go to, and she said that she was molested by a relative, and then um, and she didn't think nobody would believe her, and then she told a relative about it just recently, and a relative um, didn't believe her. She's like, "Well, look, if you don't believe me now, you weren't gonna believe me then." Like, right. Wow. Yeah, and, and and yeah, and that's been happening way too much in a lot of communities. But where I was coming from, as far as exploitation of women, I'm talking about even when you know the pilgrims or whomever, when they came to this country, you know, um, they were raping the Native American women during slavery. You know, the African women were being you know raped. And, and abused and misabused, and that continues on to this day. And so, you know, again, it's about stripping away the humanity or, you know, again, abuse of your power, abuse of your authority. And again, in this country, especially because of, you know, the patriarchal system in which we live, the women generally are blamed. I mean, there was this gentleman that raped a five-year-old little girl and claimed that she seduced him. And so we have to, you know, it's, it's just, it's unreal. And rape culture is very real. And unfortunately, you know, with Bill Cosby's image, you're going to have a lot of people out here defending him and not believing it. You have some people in the community, ironically, who are saying that, Oh, well, let's wait for all the evidence before we judge Bill Cosby. But yet they're the main ones out here screaming about Darren Wilson and what's happening in Ferguson. They don't want to wait until the facts come out in that. You know, they just know that this is what has been happening to, you know, 
people of color since we were brought to this country. But why is it so hard for them to believe that somebody that they respect, a public figure that they respect, why, why is it hard for them to believe that that person could possibly be a sexual predator. And what's unfortunate in, you know, our community, the black community in particular, is when a lot of these men are accused of this, you know, a lot of people in the community circle the wagons, in particular black women, in defense, because for black women, um, let's say down at Spelman College in Georgia, which Bill Cosby just gave a shitload of money to, um, Spelman College, it was a young woman that attended that college who was raped by several men from Morehouse. And when she tried to come out publicly, people blamed her and a lot of victims and what a lot of black women are taught. We are taught to not say anything, to silence ourselves, to keep it to ourselves because we don't want to take a black man down. And so it's, 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 it's kind of complicated. No, no, I, I got a lot of that too. I got a lot of that. Come on, brother. This is a brother. I'm like, hey, man, I got sisters and nieces. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. here's something, but here's another, here's another side of it that somebody said. Somebody said, uh, it's still Bill, before I spy, black folks were only slaves in movies and films, and he got a shot, pulled it off, heck, made me go to college because of his TV show. And I wrote, and now that Cosby is off TV, we're back to slaves. 12 years of slaves, <laughs> the hell, Django, Tyler Perry movies. <laughs> You're right. Come on, oh, uh, the butler. Right. Come on, what are you yeah. going to keep going? You want me to keep going? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And, you know, what's unfortunate about that is, you know, I was sitting back and I read what... um. I'll keep wanting to call her Annalise because of that new show, How to Get Away with Murder, Viola Davis. I read her response to some of the charges about particularly Blacks being cast in, you know, um, subservient roles or servitude roles, roles in these movies. And she was talking about how Black actors and actresses are pretty much kind of, you know, they're 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 getting it from both ends. So when they hear the black community complaining about the roles that they play, she was saying that you know there just aren't enough roles for everybody to be this noble person of, of color. And it's just it's again we have to learn how to separate the facts from the fiction. And for some of these people, again, we don't have the production houses. We don't own, you know, these studios uh, with the exception of Tyler Perry. And what he did was very smart. You know, even though I don't like a lot of his movies and I don't like the fact that he doesn't really pay these artists what they're due. But, you know, again, they're working and, you know, I just had to try to find, you know, the silver lining in that particular situation. But. Again, um, is is a lot of this boils down to the respectability politics, you know what we we're going to be talking about today. And let me go ahead and define this for people. And before I do that, the number is three one zero nine eight two four two seven three. Again, three one zero nine eight two four two seven three. And you can press one to speak. But let me tell you now, if you're on, if you call in. 
and you, you hey Raina, hey Raina, hey baby. And if you call in and you're trying to be an apologist for Bill Cosby, for you know R. Kelly, or even BB Winans and a number of other people, you know, yeah, him too. What he do? Domestic violence, intimate partner violence. Oh, Oh, yeah, and okay. so you know, they, you know, and there's a bunch of them. Hey, I can name off a shitload of people. We are not here for that today. We are not here to defend them. <laughs> you know, that is not what we're doing today. You know, <laughs> that is not what we're doing today. So let me go ahead and define respectability politics for people and get this from the truths, which is gradient layer. So, and we love her blog, Love Truths. And so right here, it says, the politics of respectability originated as cultural, sexual, domestic employment and artistic quote guidelines or quote rules for racially marginalized groups to follow in the effort to be viewed as quote human in a white supremacist society and by individual whites. Some of the most noticeable manifestations of the politics of respectability occurs among black people because of the history dehumanization because of slavery. The politics of respectability implies that recognition of black humanity has to be quote unquote earned by black people by engaging in puritanical behavior as approved by white behaviors that whites themselves don't have to engage in to quote prove humanity because of white privilege. They're always viewed as quote the default human end quote. Okay, mm -hmm. and so that is True's definition. And again, um, we're going to take it back and put it in historical context. And this here, I'm reading from um, jhu.edu, and it's talking about Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. And they said she first coined the term, quote, politics of respectability to describe the work of the Women's Convention of Black Baptist Church during the progressive era. And this is from her book, Righteous Discontent, the Women's Movement in the Black Baptist Church, 1880 through 1920. This is Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. Okay, so I want you all to know where this came from. She specifically referred to African-Americans' promotion of temperance, cleanliness of person and property, thrift, polite manners, and sexual purity. The politics of respectability entailed, quote, reform of individual behavior as a goal in itself and as a strategy for reform, end quote. Respectability was part of the, quote, uplift politics, end quote, and had two audiences, African-Americans who were encouraged to be respectable and white people who needed to be shown that African-Americans could be respectable. African-American women were particularly likely to use respectability and to be judged by it. Moreover, African-American women symbolized, even embodied this concept. Respectability became an issue at the juncture of public and private, it thus became increasingly important as both black and white women entered public spaces. And that kind of ties into what we've been saying on this show about black women in the agency of our bodies and the agency of our just being humans and how the church 
was the only place that a quote unquote respectable black woman could go without being judged as an outlier. Okay, so this ties into conversations that we've had in the past. I'm doing this on purpose because I want you all to remember it and I want you all to see how it's all tethered together. Right here, um, it talks about, you know, again, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. And it says the paradigm, and I'm getting this from refusethesilence.com. And it says here, the paradigm of politics of respectability included the blacks of the Baptist church adhering to rules of conduct that were equated with good behavior. This behavior was exemplified so that members of the black community could be seen as a viable member of society and therefore pushed racial uplift by the dominant white society. Such characteristics of this behavior included, again, temperance, thrift, refined manners, and Victorian sexual morals. The politics of respectability was a paradigm for both genders in the black church, but was particularly influential for the black women. So not only do we see sexual repression embedded in Christianity, we also see sexual repression being a form of resistance by black women to the idea that they are sexually deviant. And you know, I'm still tying it all in because, again, um, you know, reading some of the information out here, um, it was a 2008 review by Rosalind Rosenberg of Stephanie Evans' book, Black Women in the Ivory Tower. Okay. And basically, it's talking about, again, uplift politics and respectability. And here's a quote from it. It said, in many ways, black educators' careers paralleled those of white women at the time. They both joined countless clubs dedicated to social reform and shared what Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham has called the politics of respectability. Both sought to remake the black working class in their middle class image in what Eula Taylor has dubbed the iron cage of uplift, that's on page 64. But unlike their white peers, whose efforts at uplift were directed for the most part towards people from different national, ethnic, and racial groups, black educators reached out to members of the same race who faced the same kind of political, legal, social, and economic obstacles they did. Evans argues that this difference made them less willing to accept the biologically based hierarchical thinking of the day. In common with an increasing number of black feminist theorists, Evans analyzes her subjects less in the either or terms of class division and more in the both and terms of shared oppression. Okay, so um, again, you know, I'm just giving you all some excerpts um, of what, you know, is out here. And um, today we call it respectability politics. But when the phrase was first coined in 1994, so respectability politics was coined in 1994, but the politics of respectability was quoted by Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham because, you know, there's going to be some discourse as to who coined what, but anyway, but respectability politics, even before Mrs. Higginbotham called them by name, affected every African-American person in one way or another and still affect us today. 
try asking a black friend of yours, do you know anyone who goes out in public with curlers in their hair? And you'll likely get an earful, maybe about why they absolutely don't know anyone who would do that, except for their great aunt who always acted like she never had any home training anyway. Um, being respectable in the early black community meant behaving in a way that would not embarrass yourself or other black people. Um, for example, the um, the Baptist Women's Convention used to visit poor black folks, giving them pamphlets like how to dress and take a bath first. This was done to educate working class people on what were both accepted and acceptable social norms established by wealthier black communities. No one wanted their cousin Leroy or his wife to show up to a church function improperly dressed or without their manners. And so the politics of respectability were born. And then um, there's a couple of more things, but I wanted to talk about how um, black newspapers, even in the day would, um, every week, how they would uh, publish things that should, you know, that we should adhere to. Um, again, the respectability politics gained popularity in organization nationwide and solidified into a regular part of Black life. For example, the Chicago Defender, one of the country's most important Black media outlets, published the following list weekly as a reminder to his newly arrived Southern readers who came to Chicago during the Great Migration. Don't hang out the windows, don't sit around in a yard and on the porch barefoot and unkempt, don't wear handkerchiefs on your head, don't use vile language in public places, don't allow children to beg on the street, don't appear on the street with old dust caps, dirty aprons, and ragged clothes, don't throw garbage in the backyard or alley or keep dirty front yards. And I was laughing about the old dust caps. Is that like the jerry curl caps that people used to walk around with and everybody will get so angry? But um, there's much more out here. But yeah, you know, uplift politics, respectability politics, you know, it's a number of things. You know, here it says respectability politics work to counter negative views of blackness by aggressively adopting the manners and morality that the dominant culture deems respectable. The approach emerged in reaction to white racism that labeled blackness as quote unquote other, degenerate and substandard with roots uh, in an assimilated narrative that prevailed in the late 19th century United States. Black activists and allies believed that acceptance and respect for African-Americans would come by showing the majority culture, we are just like you. And that ties into what we talked about several weeks ago when I was talking about um, Booker T. Washington and his respectability politics and where some of this came from. And even, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois um, participated to a degree in respectability politics, but it's just, it's interesting how all of this came about. But anyway, I just want to open the discussion and I wanted to make sure that people on the other end understood what respect respectability politics happens to be and the definition of it and you know how it's applied now and the impact that it has on people of color and why we need to confront it. Um, Raina, did you have well, any input? Say, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say that um, Chicago Defender is still engaging 
in their respectability politics, as far as I can tell. Um, they had a writer by the name of, uh, I think her name is Kai Elzebar, um, mm-hmm. wrote a, a piece in defense of Cosby this week. Um, that right. was, you know, pretty ridiculous. Um, you know, basic, basically with the, just why are they coming out with this now and all this other stuff. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a right. bunch of foolishness, but, but yeah, um, she's right about the Chicago defender. I mean, in college, I had an opportunity to look at, you know, some of the archives that we had in at Morgan and there were some Chicago defenders, you know, around. So you can see mm-hmm. exactly what Kim was talking about in terms of, you know, articles telling black people like exactly how they should, you know, dress and behave and, you know, all of this sort of thing. And it's, um, it really is interesting, you know, but these were the ways that we thought we had to comport ourselves if we were going to escape or at least, um, you know, find some respite from, you know, from racism, basically, you know, from the way that we're being treated and, society exactly exactly and you know even with this situation with bill cosby and other you know notables out there that are you know being scrutinized there are some people in the community that feel as though the whole community will suffer because of the actions of one individual and again you know what's unfortunate about that is with you know mainstream America or white people, they are judged primarily on an individual basis. And the flip side to that is that with the black community, for the most part, when, when one person, you know, um, does something that is, you know, frowned upon, you know, unfortunately, in many cases, we are judged as a community, we are judged as a collective. And that that is one of the reasons why I feel that we have to challenge this respectability politics because you know you just don't understand how dehumanizing and demoralizing um, it is to have to prove you know your humanity time after time after time and it's unacceptable it's unacceptable because again you know many of us feel as though we're being forced in a corner and we have to adhere to a lot of the rules and politics and policies that are you know you know subjective in nature and arbitrarily applied but in addition to that we're still not viewed even even when we follow the guidelines we are still not viewed as human. We are still viewed as subhuman. And the issue is we shouldn't have to, you know, prove our humanity over and over again. It should be just accepted. And basically, you know, my whole issue with this is why can't the white community just accept that there are people different than them? The xenophobia in this country is horrible. We should not be forced to assimilate. We should be celebrated because we are different. I don't understand why that's so difficult. Because that's because that's uh, challenging the the status quo. Because it it challenges their power. So why would they want to allow that? That's true. It challenges their power. It challenges their 
authority. It challenges them being the center of everything. So it's, it's interesting because, again, last week on the show, you know, I talked about how, you know, atheism, secular humanism, even black nationalism, all of that is built on white supremacy. And it is. And, you know, and, and what we mean when we say that is the center of that is whiteness. And what's so interesting, you know, about the black nationalists and people say, how how is that built on white supremacy? White supremacy. They're talking about black people this and black people that. But if you notice, they're always talking about how, you know, black, even number one, they make up facts. They make up so-called facts, you know, um, just watch Hidden Colors, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, and (laughs) (laughs) they make up facts. But again, everything that they profess is in reaction to something that was done or said by white people. So, again, it's still based on white culture. Go ahead. Right. It's not all it's not all. you know, just a, a reaction in terms of just opposition either. It's, it's, it's um, a lot of their core beliefs are based on white supremacy in, in terms of culture, in terms of right. patriarchy. So if you notice, it's um, white, uh, you know, they, while they might challenge, you know, white people as, in terms of being in charge, they don't necessarily challenge you know, the traditional family structure as, as um, prescribed by white supremacy. They don't, you know, challenge capitalism necessarily. They right. don't um, challenge, you know, all of, these, all of these other sort of oppressive systems, the class system, uh, you know, even, you know, a lot of them don't even challenge the class system. You know? Right. And just the idea that some, some people um, should be treated better than others just based upon where they fall in terms of class. So um, you have to be, you know, cognizant of these sorts of things. Exactly. And the reason why they don't challenge it is because they want it. They want the same power. They want the same privilege. They want the same money. So they can't challenge it in that respect because, again, one day they feel that they will have that, which to me kind of parallels what we've been talking about with religion and namely the, you know, the the prosperity gospel. Uh, you have people, you have poor people voting against their own interests, poor black people and poor Latino people voting against their own interests um, and saying, well, they're going to vote Republican and vote against tax hikes because one day God is going to make them rich and I want things to be ready and set by the time I get there. And I'm like, I'm just sitting here and it's just you know, amazing. And it makes me want to pull my hair out some days because I'm like, do you not understand what you are doing, what you're saying? And that's because they want what they see other people have. You know, doesn't the Bible say you're coveting? You're not supposed to covet? Anyway, um, I don't know. It's just, it's, this I is absolutely... I don't think it's so much a matter of just coveting. I think it's also a oh, matter yeah. of you know, we live in a society where people associate those things with, you know, respect and, and, and humanness, yes. you know what I mean? Look at the yeah. people in, 
you know, in Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina, you know, we were calling them refugees. Right. And that was only because these were poor black people. You know, exactly. If they had been white or if they had 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 more resources, then no one would have been calling them that because there's there's a there's this intersection of of class and and race in operation there. And black people are not stupid. Black people know that this country, um, you know, that they can't necessarily um, they can't necessarily depend on this sort of race neutral you know, post-racial myths, right? Right. So they have to, they have to, they have to kind of adhere to another standard. And that standard is based upon wealth and materialism, you know? Exactly. So, no, I can't, um, you know, like, no, I can't really necessarily, um, you know, be raised up just because, you know, civil rights movement is over. But, you know, maybe if I, you know, add a few, um, you know, trinkets, you know, buy, buy a new car, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Buy some right. really nice clothes, you know what I mean? Maybe right. I can, you know, I can, I can, can recover, you know what I mean? At least some of that right. privilege, or at least, you know, have people look at me like I'm a human being, you know? Exactly, exactly, you know, because I have, you know, I've talked to people and they say I may not be rich, but I'm going to look that way. And, yeah, and, I mean, look and, at the way that we treat. Look at the way we treat homeless people. I mean, exactly. there's all these videos going around. I mean, where people. I mean, they literally just ignore them. Like, you know what I mean? Right. And I, you know, and it's not to say that like I've not been guilty of that in the past, but I think I've. I'm trying to change. You know, the way that I. You know, I I do things, and so I I notice how people treat homeless people. You know, and right. I'm I'm super thankful that like I've never had to experience that in my life because I know that must be difficult. You know, to have exactly. people look at you like you're nothing, to have people, you know, turn up their noses at you like, yeah, you haven't been able to shower, but that's because you don't have a place to go. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, it's, not, it's not that you think because you're not worthy as a human being of of, right. of water and shower. It's because you right. lack material resources. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. And and you're absolutely correct. And and the, you know, they're shaming poor people. And that's what it all boils down to. It's about them being poor. That is the issue. And we have to, you know, again confront that. And again, some of this, you know, some, quite a bit of this is tethered to politics. Because what used to be transient housing in which these people would be able to afford to live there. And, you know, a lot of that was torn down and shut down by Ronald Reagan. And you need to go back and look and look and see how all of this came about. And, you know, the same thing with the mental institutions. You know, Ronald Reagan shut down a lot of the mental institutions. These people were basically pushed out into the street. And unfortunately, many of our jails are overrun with people with mental health issues. And the jails are now functioning as a mental health facility, which is not what it was equipped for. And it's it's just, it's a lot, it's kind of, it's not complicated, but it is. And it all boils um, down to, uh-huh. 
I was going to say there's a documentary that I heard about this this past week on Democracy Now, but I don't remember the name. But um, there was a young, uh, well, he's not young now, but when he was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe 19 or 20 years old, there was this young man whose father had passed away and not really understanding um, the laws, you know, around probate and all of this sort of thing. um, Mm -hmm. The young man took his father's tools. Um, which his father had actually willed to him, but apparently he owed the state some money. Um, and so because of that, he was basically charged with, you know, theft. And um, and he was sentenced, I think, maybe so a year or two in prison. Or, it might have been more, a couple than, more, more than a couple of years. But, um, you know, this young man was, his father was trained. Like, his father believed, well, his father had participated, in, I think, in World War One. Right mm-hmm. or or, um, or World War Two, probably both war, world wars. But in any case, his father participated in both world wars, and like he trained his son because he thought that the communists were coming. Right? right. So he trained his son in like survival tactics, um, how to build weapons, traps, hunting, all that kind of stuff. So this guy has escaped prison eleven times, or tried to escape prison eleven times, seven of which were successful. So that added an, um, time on his sentence. But what really added time on his sentence was one of those occasions he built a gun in prison. Now, how one builds a gun in prison is you know, <laughs> amazing. But he built a gun in prison and um, he fired it, but not not at someone. But um, but but the, I guess by him possessing the gun and I guess a guard feeling threatened. They charged him with attempted murder. He got 34 years in prison. Well, wow. how this ties in with the mental health component is, is that during his trial, he was deemed competent by a state professional psychologist. And um, later, because, um, well, he's had a couple of different incidents, but one of the incidents was he got sent to the um, Florida State Penitentiary. And... Um, while he was there because he had escaped so many times, it was deemed that he wasn't going to be allowed outside. He was in lockdown for 10 years without sunlight. Wow. That is unreal. Unreal. I mean, they finally had to, um, his lawyers finally had to, you know, write to the state and say his health is in danger without sunlight. And so they finally let him out. But when they were trying to get his sentence, his sentence reduced, um, they called back in the psychologist who said that he was competent. And when he realized how long that man had been in jail since he deemed him competent, he said he had made a mistake. Oh no, that is a mistake. That he hadn't, that he didn't, you know, that he really had not believed that he would be in jail much longer and that he really was sort of faking it. But he was saying based on all of the things that he had done while he was in prison um, and the, and, and sort of the added prison time um, right. that he must have, he must have been, you know, mentally ill when he deemed him. Right. So, you know, this wow. is just the sort of stuff that goes on in the system, you know, I mean, so, you know, this the system is not meant to handle these types of cases, and increasingly we're turning over mental health services to the prison industrial complex, and that's a really, really dangerous thing. Exactly. You know? 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, we have a caller. May I ask who's calling? 614. May we ask who's calling? Andre from Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Andre. Uh, Welcome. Uh, I don't know. Oh, thanks. I don't, I'm not exactly uh, sure. I just came in the past, like, 10, 15, 20 minutes. But, you know, the conversation of black respectability politics is something that I've really kind of started, like, researching myself. And not only that, I say, like, throughout my life, like, I've seen how it's affected, like, our judgment and things as far as, like, black folks are concerned. Like, there's respectability politics in all areas, but then the black community is really kind of shows its ugly head at certain points. Like, you mentioned the Cosby situation, like, 10 years ago. But also, I don't know if you mentioned this, but, like, our black elite, like, and one in particular, Barack Obama. Like, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. uh, when he does his whole, whenever he speaks to black audiences, it's sort right. of the same nonsense being spit up. Like, right. it's the whole thing of pull your pants up and if you wear black fathers, even though there's a study by the CDC that black fathers are oftentimes more involved than exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because the same study by the CDC that I tried to talk with my mother and my sister about, and they don't want to believe it because they figure, you know, our own experiences we believe in and, you know, that can't be true, you know, black men don't necessarily fit their business. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, this is why the CDC, like, this is why a, like, an organization that does the work on this. And they said, no, well, because we don't trust what the CDC does. So they created a polar something for that nature. But it's problematic because you you don't necessarily see what's going on. Like, you don't understand the white supremacist nature of what you're doing. Like, right. I think people tend to think, look, whenever I hear someone say, put your pants up, they might think that, you know, you, you need to carry yourself in a, uh, in a respectful fashion. And I understand what they're, where they're coming from. But it kind of seems like there's this whole thing of, you know, the whole issue with black men need to pull their pants up. Like, you're like the whole thing with the Chris Rock bit, the niggas versus right. black. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like, I, I guess people kind of feel like, well, you're making us look bad. Uh, you know, they even cite the fact that the civil rights movement, you know, dressed up in their Sunday's best. And, you know, they had to do all this to get the game respect. And somebody mentioned that to me. And I said, really think about that, though. Why is it right. that they had to dress up in suits to be respected by by a, a society that did not respect them? Fundamentally disrespected them at every turn. Just to show that they were human. Right. Like, I don't think I don't think that there's a lot of people that really examine that, the whole role of respectability politics. They even like you said with the written color, like my grandmother and 
my grandmother and my mother told me about this movie. And I hadn't heard about it. Then when the movie came on, I said, it showed, you know, Sarukashi's name. And I was like, that thing looks familiar. And then I've seen his face. I'm like, oh, hell no, man. <laughs> the pimp, though? I was like, come on, man. I, I don't have to sit there and tell him, like, yo, man, I don't think you realize, like, this dude is, is pulling hustle. But, you know what I'm saying? Like, like if you look at the whole thing, if there's a part in the, the hidden colors. I don't, I don't understand. I don't remember which one. But they somehow linked it to the prison culture. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, did you just basically try to tell black men to pull their pants up? use a homophobia against them? Is that what you're Right. Thinking? Right. Like, come on, man. Like, that that kind of stuff just kind of pisses me off. Like, we don't understand the games that's being played on this. Mm-hmm. Another thing that respectability politics is it. Even in Ferguson, you got people urging people to be Nonviolent, like you know, I we like to you know ask for peace and you know just you know protest peacefully. Why? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that I'm for not for nonviolence, but it's kind of like I understand, like I understand the anger that's in the air. Like you know, if you want to do nonviolence, that's fine. But I just I also understand the feel of Helplessness, like no one cares right. about your situation until a window gets broken or a business right. gets burnt down. You know? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Um, and black elites, you know, have play a major role in respectability politics. That's why you know it's important that you know we understand you know how it's built and the impact that it has on our lives. And you're correct. Um, I wanted to you know, say something that, about the Ferguson I don't thing. To, I, don't, I, don't to, I don't mean to cut in also. Also, another thing I, uh, I noticed during the week of the Ferguson, uh, during Mike Brown's funeral, a big example of this is Al Sharpton speaking to the church and talking right. about outside agitators and you know, talk about how black on black crime and, uh, you know, basically chastising people for not voting in the area as if voting is actually going to help the situation. Like, right. Like, how dare you come to a community that's already had to deal with, like, a shocking experience the way that, that played out? Well, I will say this. Right? I will say this. I don't, I don't. I don't really like or stand or or really I don't really care for Al Sharpton at all to be honest with you, but he is right. he is correct when he mm-hmm. says that people need to vote, particularly in Ferguson where the the majority of the population over seventy percent of the population is black and like virtually none of their representatives are are, are of color. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Where the police force is six percent African American in a community of over 70% African-American. Mm-hmm. And in, 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 in their case, voting would help. The problem is, is that 
the um, the voting laws in terms, especially in terms of like early voting and you know voter ID and all that type of stuff, are sort of, are against them. You know what I mean? And so that needs to change. Yeah. But we also but we also have to do our part as citizens to you know that's just a very simple thing that they can do. I'm not you know as a you know protesting and all of that is is good, but you also have to have um, the right. I mean, look at their mayor. Their mayor is literally on television telling people that there is no race problem in front Exactly. That's he right. is literally on television saying these things. He yeah. is literally representing the community to be a primarily middle-class community of Black people who don't really see any racial problems. When when the facts on the ground prove otherwise, there are exactly. an average of three warrants per household. The poverty, exactly. you know, poverty and, and joblessness is high. The you know a lot of those stores that are boarded up. Some of them are open, but a lot of them are closed and have been for a very long time because there's very little economic development going on in that area because it is primarily black. So we have exactly. to make you know, recognition of those facts. But I also wanted to say in terms of um, Ferguson, one of the things that troubled me about the whole Mike Brown situation is the way that sometimes we feel the need to, you know, to focus on um, on on someone going to college, you know what I mean, right? Or having a particular right. job or whatever, in order exactly. for them to somewhat be humanized, you know what I mean? Exactly. Because Mike yeah. Brown was a human being, whether or not he decided he wanted to go to college or not, you know, he's exactly he's a human being. He shouldn't have to go and get a bachelor's well. degree or an associate's degree or whatever in order for someone to recognize him as a human being. So I had a problem with that because even if Mike Brown was a thug. He is still a human being. Exactly. You know I mean? And he has every exactly. right. He has every right to live. You know what I mean? As uh, you right. know, as long as he as long as he's not you know in the midst of killing somebody. You know what I mean? Like you have no right, right to shoot him. You know what I mean? Exactly. You're, yeah, you're absolutely correct, and that's why you know we're confronting it and we're giving people examples of respectability politics and you know the situation with Ferguson is what a lot of people don't understand is that Ferguson is just a microcosm of this issue the issue where as the fines and the fees that people of color the black people in that community are paying is being paid to 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 disenfranchise them is being paid to uphold white supremacy because again the majority of the people that work for the city and county they are white and these fines and fees pay their salaries and it's not just right. Ferguson this is happening all across the country and oh, you yeah. know this is why we're bringing it to your attention we want you all to look 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 at where you live what city and what town you look at, you live in and look to see how the fees, the fines and, you know, these violations and the money, the revenue that's generated, all of that money goes back into the city or the county or the state. Now, who benefits the most? They won't look like you or me. So, you know, what's happening in Ferguson is extremely important because it can have an impact across this country, which in turn will impact people in other places because people in Africa, people in Holland, people, you know, black people in Germany, black in Africa, a lot of these people in these different places look up to African-Americans. 
They look up to black Americans and you, you're seeing more people stand up. And they, you know, the Africans were telling us that when they were fighting against apartheid, that they were looking to see what was happening over here in America and our fight against the black codes, our fight against Jim Crow, you know, during the civil rights movement, how that inspired them to go out and to protest even more. Um, what happened most recently, Black people in Holland, the Black Dutch, Afro-Dutch people, they went out and they protested against um, Pete. What's the name of that thing? Pete. I know it's Pete something. Um, the, with the I black think it's like Black Pete. Black Pete. Yeah. Or, or Swarty yeah, Pete, Pete or whatever Pete. they call him. Yeah, yeah. So Black Pete, Zwarte Pete, but the Pete person, um, you know, with the black face, they were out there protesting, whereas in the past they complained about it. But now they're out there protesting because they're standing up for their rights. They actually marched for Ferguson. You know, the people in Afghanistan, some of the blacks in Afghanistan, some of the black Palestinians, they actually marched and sent words of and encouragement. Some, and some Arab Palestinians, yeah. some Arabs are, are protesting yeah. too, because they see, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at a lot of the, the militarization and the, and the use of force against peaceful protesters abroad, mm -hmm. it's the same, they're bringing those same tactics to the United States. You know what I mean? And it's all connected. It's all connected in the, you know, That's military right. industrial complex, you know? Oh, you're talking about the police chief. And uh, I also heard about that. The police chief went to Israel to get training from from them for the whole... Mm -hmm. like, it's all connected. The, the, exactly. a, lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of these military professionals, when they leave military service, are going into the security industry. And exactly. as part of their work in the security industry and, count, and, and consulting, they're consulting police departments to basically treat citizens as enemy combatants. And that's exactly. not, and, and that's not okay. Exactly. And another example was up in, well, hold on a second. Another example is up in Detroit, Michigan, when they were protesting about water. Okay, when they were cutting mm -hmm. everybody's water off, the water bill, but the corporations there had bills that were passed due for tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they were still on. And the people were out there protesting peacefully. And what they did mm -hmm. is they brought out this device that basically, you know, um, it pretty much kind of shakes the ground, but it also affects their hearing. And this was the only way that they could disperse the peaceful okay. protesters. Exactly. Yeah, there the you L go. Rads. Yeah, the yeah, L rad. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we want you all to understand that. Go ahead, Andre. You were about to say something about Ferguson. Yeah, I was going to also say that, uh, and I've heard about that too. The problem is I, another thing that uh, I want to address is how corporate media, corporate media is influencing this, and it's a great thing that there's people marching solidarity, but because of the corporation's influence, how many people, even within Ferguson, don't like we uh, we don't very really have like a media that like is in our best interest. So when things like Ferguson happen, we all we all know this becomes a worldwide issue. But I think that there's also another uh, like trauma, you know, just. Not knowing, like, there's a lot of people that don't know that uh, 
about the whole issue of the police chief going to Israel to get, you know, to get trained. There's also people that don't even know about the air rats, that don't right. know about, like, the military-industrial complex's role in all this, that don't even know that the reason that, you know, the helicopter, like, if you remember that the, uh, that they basically banned airspace from Ferguson. Right. And why that happened was because the FAA did not want the media looking at what was going on and the media complied. Mm-hmm. Which, and he, it was also interesting is um, I remember uh, I, forget, I forgot this guy's name was a, it was a white guy and it was the same thing that Christopher Dorner did. And this is how even racism even plays in crime like they, it happened this year. He went on the killing spree against cops, right? The guy, I think he either got shot in the leg, but he also got arrested. The thing about uh, what happened with Christopher Dorner, like, they basically used drones to catch him. They set his the, the cabin on fire. And I'll argue that they both deserve either a trial or at least to be in prison, but that even goes into play. You know? Like, right. I have to look yeah, up the I guy's mean, name, but mm-hmm. I have to look up the guy's name, but he was uh he was white, he was a top killer also. But the difference is he actually lived to tell the story. Christopher Dorner's dead. So and they both deserve to go to well, jail, but even I that think it, that's part of the I was going to say, I think it's part of also the the conversation about respectability also has to talk about how, you know, blackness itself is seen as a weapon. I mean, we, I think we all remember the young, I mean, we've had, we've seen lately the number of people who've been arrested for carrying weapons, you know, on uh, trying to get into the White House, you know what I mean? Um, And and all of that. Um, There was a young woman who, you know, tried to crash the barriers who had her child in the backseat, clearly mentally ill, didn't have any weapons. They shot her to death. You know what I mean? There, I mean, but yet, you know, there are other people who've been just simply arrested. And I think we also just have to recognize that, that, that when we think about all these black men who've been, you know, victimized by police because, you know, they weren't seen as particularly particularly respectable or seen as dangerous, that black women are also not afforded any, any protection. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, so, I right. Think we need to do, I think we do really, like, really need to talk about, for every Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, we need to talk about the Ayanna, and we also need to talk about the Bernice McBride. We and, the, right. and the Rakia boys. That's right. We we do need to talk more about that. And I'll also say another way that racism, like I'm from Ohio, so, uh, and I also went to Wright State University uh, out in the state there where uh, John Crawford was shot. And when I went to Wright State University, I've always wondered that the, the Walmart around the corner from uh, from uh, Wright State University, it, there's a bridge that connects, right? And the mm-hmm. uh, the bus system that goes to the, the that goes to Wright State does not cross the bridge. And I've always wondered. I always thought it was the dumbest thing that could possibly happen. That you had a 
a university around the corner from a mall area. And I'll later on find out that the, the people in Greene County basically voted to keep black people out because basically the RTA bus system goes through their city dates. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, Yeah, I read that somewhere. It's a shame that the majority of the people who work in the mall, who, you know, are, you know, the retailer, the the retail store clerks, you know, the the janitors, you know, the food service workers are primarily black and Latino. And yet the bus that they need to ride to get to the mall, they can't even catch it. Right. They can't catch uh, it home to, or that. Yeah. You would you would have to go you would have to literally walk across a bridge if you didn't have a car. Which, you know, I did right. a couple of times but I thought to myself, you know what? I just go to the other mall which is on the other side of Dayton, which is close to the, uh, another Dayton suburb. Which it was just it was kind of frustrating. And right. when when the whole John Crawford thing happened, I was like, Wow, like it was kind of it kind of confirmed a lot of those issues. And I was right. thinking to myself, right. you know, that's... Exactly. Yeah. And it's I a mean, lot of that happening. Go ahead, Randy. Oh, go ahead, Kim. No, go ahead. No, I'm, go ahead. No, I was getting ready to no, switch off. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you had a thought. Okay. No, no, switch off. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, I was just, you know, talking about the respectability politics and, you know, and I understand we're trying to empower ourselves and that's what we should be doing. But there's a difference between good empowerment and false empowerment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what we have to expose and what we have to confront, because, um, again, by us falling into the respectability politics, um, you know, what it does, it tells us that, you know, we're the problem and we have to change ourselves and change what is within us. And it also sidesteps institutionalized racism and it, 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 you know, sidesteps the public policies that are written to disenfranchise us. It sidesteps, you know, the the disadvantages that we have economically, politically, and educational-wise. And so this but is one also, of the reasons. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, but it also, it also sidesteps the fact that respectability covers so much, um, so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? So much, um, so much oh i can't even think right now i don't know i'm sorry girl but basically how respectability <laughs> covers so much dysfunction sorry so right. much dysfunction and how it's used to as a cover for you right. know predatory behavior as we've seen in the case of bill cosby and others how respectability mm-hmm. you know basically can be used as a shield to protect your to protect yourself from scrutiny, you know? And so, right. you know, this respectability that everybody is trying to uh, aspire to is really not all it's cracked up to be, you know? Exactly, exactly. And it's tethered to self-hate. And, and what the respectability politics does, it gets Black people to internalize the white gaze. And what I mean when I say the white gaze is how white people see us. So they no longer have to say anything. We police each other. 
We police ourselves. Well, you know, what would these Mm -hmm. white people think if I said this? What would these white people do if I did that? I mean, and so they no longer have to to publish it. it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And this is why we're bringing it to you so that you all can kind of understand. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of different examples, like the example of the young woman, the young lady that was going to school and they sent her home and her parents withdrew her because the school had this policy about dreadlocks and afros and they were saying that they had you know a respectable environment and that those hairdos were a distraction and and and, and while we're talking about parenthood while we're talking about parenthood can we talk about shanisha taylor who was who was yes you know with the court and how the court forced uh you know mandated that she had to spend the donations that she was given in a particular way um you know, and putting 60% up for college uh, in a trust. My feeling on that situation is, is that the court should never have told her how to spend that money. That was her money to spend. And, um, you know, and to squander, even if she wanted to, it wasn't, it wasn't the the state that had given her that money. So the state should not have been in the business of trying to control it. Now, Um, With that said, I have ideas about how I would have liked to have seen her to spend that money. But at the end of the day, it's not my money. And we have this system that we have a system in place that already holds black parenthood, but particularly black motherhood as suspect, you know, as as deficient, you know, and it goes and I mean, it goes back way before you know, the Moynihan report to, to even slavery, you know, I right. mean, just the, the whole notion of the mammy, you know, the, right. the you know, they were going to have a mammy memorial. And the whole notion was that somehow um, slavery civilized black women and, and taught them how to care for children, um, even even if they weren't their own, you know, because all those picking um images were to show mm-hmm. that black women didn't really care for their children well or couldn't without, um, white influence you know what i mean so exactly and the memorial that yeah that the the memorial that you're talking about it was shot down twice they tried to do it two times and it was shot down twice go ahead andre right yeah i also wanted to uh to talk about also the uh one of our institutions that in the black community hbcu I think they also play a role in how respectability politics plays. Like, particularly, some schools have dress codes. Uh, I, I don't. Oh yeah. I think it was yeah. I think it was Hampton that the. I think yeah. it was the Hampton that basically banned people from having dress. And it was right. And Morehouse that, has a policy yeah. on men's dress, too. Yeah, I, I saw that too. Yeah. Uh, basically. Party came in with that, and mm-hmm. and I had to tell I had to talk to people all the time like yo listen this type of stuff is dangerous like you don't understand the role that it plays like the white person's nature that is it's ingrained in and I think right. that a lot of people when you tell them that you're you're attacking their morals and all. another thing I'll say that and I want to ask. Both of you two, uh, do you think the whole thing of the 
whole issue of respecting your elders also comes into play where we kind of have this need to basically our elders are, are are sacred. Like we shouldn't criticize them. We shouldn't critique them on how their views have also played a role in this because, you know, Bill Cosby is just one of many. Yeah. People. It's a like, way, it's like, a way, yeah. it's a way of basically it's, it's about power, right? It's mm-hmm. about, right. it's about sort of, of it, it's, it's about authority. It's about hierarchies, right? Exactly. And it preserves it preserves these these sorts of hierarchical systems that you know dis- disenfranchise people. So I can't speak out against this person because they're older than me, you know. Right. And particularly if that person has money and power, as Bill Cosby does. You right. know what I mean? It goes mm-hmm. double for him. Yeah. You know. Oh yes. Exactly. And so, yeah, and, and it's just it's interesting because, you know, we're taught not to speak back to our elders. And again, they'll pull out some scriptures on you saying you are to honor your mother and father, but they forget the one that says, do not tempt your children, not do not provoke right. them, you know, and right. it's, it's just it's interesting. But. Yeah, it's so much that you know we have to cover. But I wanted to go back to what as... you said about the hair of the Hampton, because I wanted to say that um, that also mm-hmm. while there's that there are these policies that uh, that are strict about certain hairstyles that are ex- ex- acceptable and and unacceptable, that even within the natural hair community, which is growing, you know, for Black women, right? There, there is a tendency to um, to deem certain curl patterns mm-hmm. and certain types of in certain types of natural hairstyles as more respectable than others or more acceptable than others. Um, you know, even within the um, natural hair community, where we saw a lot of women sort of in the tradition of Madam C.J. Walker, you know, coming up with their own sort of you know um, health and beauty, you know, um, regimens that now we're starting to see those co-opted by a lot of mainstream right. corporations, whereas the, the styles were kinky and, you know, natural and, um, you know, whatever coils. Now they're trying to call it multicultural curls. Exactly. You know I mean? And they're, and they're, exactly. and they're sort of representing uh, the natural hair community with um, a standard that most of us don't fit as black women, you know? So it's just something right. that I thought I would throw out right. there. So. Oh, yeah. And and one thing, you know, um, with the respectability politics, you know, basically, I feel what it does is it basically thwarts our efforts to challenge the barriers that we have to deal with in, in American society. And basically, it, it you know, it challenges our ability to challenge, you know, the status quo. And it kind of forces us back into subjugation. And it costs some of us our lives is what I wanted to also mm -hmm. point out. Because um, I think I posted on your wall this week an article about the Grim Sleeper, uh, a black serial killer in Los Angeles who killed a lot of prostitutes. And, you know, the reason that um, he was allowed, he was basically permitted 
to be out here killing these prostitutes because people thought that, oh, thought that, you know, well, he's just killing hookers. Like somehow them being hookers makes their lives less worthy of respect and protection, you know? Exactly. And we have right. to recognize that for, for, for women of color um, in particular, um, because of our history, that there have uh, traditionally been fewer um, occupational opportunities for black women and for other women of color. And so a lot of women, women that we're related to, women who, who we look up to even now, That's right. That's who right. would never tell us, who would never tell us that they did these things, right. have, have been engaged in, in prostitution. You know what I mean? Right. So we just right. have to, we have to recognize that, you know, I mean, you know, look at, um, you know, look at Maya Angelou, who was not, who did not apologize for the fact that she was a prostitute. That's right. That's right. You know what I mean? She was a prostitute. That's right. So we have to recognize that this respectability politics, it costs people lives. It, exactly. It really does. Exactly. And and one thing that I want to point out is because we when we talk about things like this, we get all of this deflection. And, and one of the things that we hear in, in, in when we're addressing these issues is what about black on black crime? Black on black crime. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is used quite often. And, you know, what people don't seem to understand is that what when people say that what they're saying is, again, they're taking away from our humanity, but they're saying that we're failing to measure up to mainstream um, America and what they deem as proper and what they deem as moral. While yet no one talks about, you know, what happens with white on white crime. Now, I don't believe there's such a thing as black on black crime or white on white crime. You know, I, I believe it's more, again, we talked about it, about uh, proximity hypothesis. But again, when, when they throw out that black on black crime, it is, again, telling us that we do not measure up to white mainstream it's America. About, it's about recalling, it's about calling up all of those those negative stereotypes that black people are savage and that we're animals and that we are violent by nature and uncivilized and all of these other things. That's what that's about when they bring up black on black crime. And also, it also is basically a knee jerk reaction to whenever black folks do sort of go into the discussion of how white supremacy, you know, affects these issues. Yeah, it's just like the reaction of the mayor of of the governor of Missouri calling for a state of emergency when black people are bringing their their very real concerns about police profiling and and state violence, you know, to react to that with a um, declaration of of, of a state of emergency just demonstrates that they believe that black people are inherently violent, that we cannot um, voice our concerns without without violence and um or, or and and also i think on a certain level it also just demonstrates that people don't believe that black rage is in as all justified you know you're cutting out dear i was saying it also demonstrates that to to, to many people that they think that black rage is somehow not justified uh-huh. 
Right, right, right. And, and, and what's interesting is the article that you posted on my wall last week, I had posted that same article a couple of months ago when it first came out. And it was talking about Ferguson and the Black Rage. And what they did was they really, you know, pointed out how it wasn't necessarily Black Rage, but it was White Rage against Black Progress. And, 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 and people, go ahead, Raina. I hear you. No, I didn't say anything. Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, people have to, you know, look at that. But I want to give a quote from Kevin Gaines. Kevin Gaines, he's a historian, and he says, you know, in regards to respectability politics, that, quote, the racist and anti-racist preoccupation with the status of the patriarchal family among Blacks and the notion of self-help among Blacks as building and promoting family stability came to displace a broader vision of uplift as a group struggle for citizenship and material advancement, end quote. So I just thought that was important for, you yeah, know, us that's, that's neoliberalism, black people, black, uh, people who say that black people are not, um, you know, that we, that we have not tried to integrate ourselves into the American way of life or into American culture have not paid attention. Black people have done nothing but believe in the American dream. We have extremely patriotic. We're extremely patriotic and we We've done nothing but adhere to the model of self um, self reliance and um, and uplift. So if anybody um, anybody who says otherwise, they're just lying. You know. Do you know what's yeah. funny about that? That also costs us our lives. Believing in the idea that if you you just work hard, you know, you can make it. You can you know move up the social ladder. That's also basically. Right. It's also this cost of in reality. Right. Agreed. Especially when, yeah, when your politicians are telling you this stuff. And it just feeds into your head. You start to believe. Especially right. when, you know, I have to go back to President Obama. He also does. He, you mm-hmm. know, whenever so. And I also remember uh, the question when he had a topic. And the BT uh, is the BT journalist that it said, uh, I think it was how the stimulus would affect black people. Uh, and he basically gave the whole answer of uh, rise and rise, let's all vote. He basically didn't answer the question. Right. He, he, yeah, he never addressed the issue. And, you know, uh, well, look what happens. We have the double of the employment rate more than any other race in this country. And those issues aren't getting talked about. Or when they do get talked about, and unfortunately, you see other black people sort of, you know, look at these sides, but it's like, okay, well, you just want to be catered to the like, what? Like, this is a real issue. This is stuff that affects us. Like these are issues that right that we have to talk about and we have to confront. But what it is is people still believe in the American dream. Right. And Agreed. Still asleep. Exactly. Right. And yep. and that notion of, you know, the talented tenth or our um, you know, American um well, the you know the the uh, talented tenth that 
that's a lie. That's oh, yeah. a lie. That's a lie. Um, and and people need to understand that. And unfortunately, many of us fell for that. And yeah, we, I'm sorry, Du Bois. That was like that was like the worst thing that Du Bois ever came up with. <laughs> but you know what? But the thing, but the truth of the matter is, but the truth of the matter, is, he got it from a white man. It was a white well, yeah, man. And he, he, you know, of course. yeah. Well, you know, Du Bois was a fan of William James too. But I mean, you know, right. <laughs> you know, and, so, you know, right? Exactly. But that's all I'm saying. Exactly. Like, I'm just saying that's the worst thing that he, you know, that he, you know, put forth. You know, but um, right. it was still better than that BS that Booker T. Washington was coming out with. But uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I mean, I would be remiss if we didn't, you know, talk a little bit today about this so-called post-racial America, you know, and how it's tethered to respectability politics. And, you know, again, that's bullshit too. We are not living in a post-racial America. Many of the gains that the feminists, you know, achieved in the 60s and 70s, many of the that you know African Americans achieved in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, all of that has been rolled back and some. So again, we're starting over and we're starting over behind. And you have these people out here saying, Well, you live in America, you should be grateful. You'd be running around Africa swinging from trees. That's another thing. Don't believe them when they're saying that. If you go to Johannesburg, Johannesburg really is is a mirror reflection of New York City. Not everybody is over there, you know, covering themselves with nets trying to avoid flies and mosquitoes. That's not how it is over there. And so, you know, again, I want you guys to understand and, and, and start putting this in perspective. And it, again, I would be remiss if I don't tie it into religion to a certain degree. Because you have people that are in positions of authority, you know, some of these civil rights leaders, like, you know, we talked about Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, but you got your ministers, you have some teachers, you have family uh, members, you know, community activists, if you will, that, you know, they, they build on the idea of respectability. And, you know, Andre was correct when he was saying about Al Sharpton chastising um, the community about pulling up your pants. And the same thing about Barack Obama when he was chastising the community over at Bishop Brazier's church right there on the south side, right off the 63rd in Stony Island there, um, when he was chastising the black community about um, being good fathers. And, and it's correct, you know, uh, um, the surveys have come out, the data has come out that black fathers are more engaged with their children than, than white fathers are on average. And so, again, we have to tear down these myths and we do not live in a post-racial America. If we lived in a post-racial America, Ferguson would have never happened. If we lived in a post-racial America, we would not have the obstructionist, you know, the you know, the obstruction that we're seeing in Congress. You know, what is happening to Barack Obama, I call it plantation politics. And I'll say this if I don't say anything else about it. If Barack Obama didn't know he was black, 
they surely reminded him during his presidency. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's really interesting, but you know, again, and, and you know, and I can't leave out the public intellectuals and these entertainers and journalists. And again, they're also out here building on, you know, respectability politics. And, you know, Real again, you know, exactly, you know, and then they try to, they try to portray it as tough love, you know, and it's not right. tough love. Well, yeah. Respectability politics basically is the belief that you can, that you can behave your way out of being oppressed. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it is. Exactly. And, 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 you know, even if you, you're behaving or whatever, however they put that, behaving your way out of not being lynched, behaving your way of not being beat by the police, it still doesn't, you know, account for the discrimination that we have on the jobs. It doesn't, you know, account for, you know, um, the policies on the books that discriminate against us. It doesn't account for why, you know, businesses move out once we move in. You know, it, it doesn't account for any of that, you know, good behavior. Good behavior is not going to stop, you know, your job from firing you because, you know, they cut the budget, but they can't, you know, fire Billy Bob because Billy Bob is good friends with Joe, the manager over here. So we got to get rid of Aquanetta over there. And so, you know, we just want you all to understand and Although Barack Obama was elected to the highest office in this country, the highest office in the land, the president of the United States, that does not mean that racism has faded away. As a matter of fact, I said I told people when he was elected, I said, actually, things are going to get worse. And they didn't believe me. And it has gotten worse because now what used to be subtle racism has now become more overt. And, you know, you have but you those know what? I don't think I think the subtle racism is actually worse. I mean, you know, because yeah, it is. I think now that, it, that it's out in the open, it's like, you know, now some of us know that we have to, um, you know, know that we have to be more aware of what's going on. When it was subtle, a lot of us were running around here thinking that, like, we weren't going to run into problems with right. people discriminating against us. You know what I mean? So now some of us know we can kind of be on alert and kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. marshal our resources. You know what I mean? Whereas before we were just sort of out here blind and and detached and, you know, unconnected, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And one thing that, oh, no, no, you're absolutely correct. You know, I'd rather have it, you know, overt in my face. At least I know what I'm dealing with. And right. so, you know, um, yeah. And so one thing that I want to say, because we're down to the last three minutes is, you know, again, you have to be careful with the media because the media, they're going to back black elites, period. They're going to back people like um, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and all of this at the expense of poor and working class black people. Okay, and so we need to understand, you know, how this is done to cover 
for the racist practices and policies that are on the books in this country. And that is the reason why I'm pointing the finger at this so-called commission that they convened in Ferguson. You got two pastors on there. You got a bunch of EDDs and JDs. I only saw one person of color who may possibly be, you know, one of the activists, but it should be more activists on that grassroots and community activists on that panel. Because again, these preachers, they're going to get something out of it. The black elites are going to get something out of it. All at the expense of the poor and working class black folks. If you didn't get anything else from this show today, understand that. So, um, it's, it's just it's interesting, um, you know, how all of this is coming about, but we want you to understand, you know, what is happening and how it's used against us and how a lot of this is used to deflect the conversation. I'm just saying don't fall for the okie doke because we have been bamboozled, we have been hoodwinked. And I want you guys to be aware. And so, I want to thank Andre. I want to thank Raina and Travis for calling in. We're going to go ahead and end this on time today, but I appreciate you guys. We're going to do a show live thank whenever you. we get this verdict from Ferguson. So when we get the verdict from Ferguson, I'm telling you within an hour or two or maybe a few hours so that we can kind of evaluate the situation and see what's happening out there. We're going to have a show. I'm going to try my best to get in touch with some people on the ground in Ferguson um, because I have people out there and we want to know what's going on. So, again, you know, what's happening in Ferguson will have an impact across this country. And I need for you all to understand the situation. Your city, your town, your state is just a mirrored reflection of what's happening in Ferguson. You know, it, it, it's the same shit happening over and over. So on that note, you all take it easy and have a good Sunday. Take care. And again, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Take care, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 